Prolonging life and holding off death, emergency medical care takes up only 3% of the $1.5 trillion the nation spends on health care. It'll never be replaced by boutique medicine clinics. Why aren't we spending a whole lot more? You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Angela Gardner, President-Elect of the American College of Emergency Physicians. Dr. Gardner is an Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at the University of Texas in Galveston. She is a published author, she served in many leadership roles at ASAP, and she was the national spokesperson for Doctors for Medical Liability Reform. Today we're discussing the Access to Emergency Medical Services Act, Bills H.R. 1188 and S-468, which are now before our lawmakers. Welcome, Dr. Gardner, to Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you for having me. In 2006, 120 million people sought health care in emergency departments. Historically, why don't we fund our emergency departments? Well, I think the simplest answer to that is that when the formula for paying physicians, which is called the SGR, Sustainable Growth Rate Formula, was formed, emergency medicine wasn't a specialty. And now? Well, the specialty just celebrated its 40th birthday. And we have gained respectability and acceptance in the medical community and in the general community. And now I think that emergency medicine is taken for granted. What is the Access to Emergency Medical Service Act? This is legislation that we hope will improve quality and protect patient safety in the emergency department. It has several arms, if you will. It calls for the creation of a national bipartisan commission on the access to emergency medical services. It looks at factors that affect the delivery of care in the, in the U.S. It calls for additional resources to support the delivery of emergency care. And it looks for the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services to collect data on emergency department boarding. So what in it, does it particularly propose certain plans and provide funding for certain services that will improve quality and protect safety? Is it that specific? Well, this is a general plan. We know that the causes of the problems in emergency care in America are multifactorial, and the solutions will also need to be multifactorial. That's why we need both parties to be involved. So we need someone to take a big look at it and tell us the solutions or involve us in the solutions. We do have some ideas about what could help in the meantime. One of them is the support for on-call specialists. One of the biggest problems that we have now is getting people to take call in the emergency department, people like an orthopedic surgeon or a neurosurgeon. Well, it's pretty clear. Once they learned they didn't have to or in certain hospitals they weren't taking call, they shut down. Well, that's correct, and I don't want to blame my colleagues. Many of them have very, very busy practices they're dealing with during the day, and given the option of not getting up in the middle of the night to see a patient, most of them would prefer to sleep in their own beds, and I can't fault them for that. The problem is we do need those people to take care of people who are injured in the middle of the night or on the weekend or on a holiday. It's interesting what this evolved into because for general practitioners or internists, they are actually giving their call to hospitalist groups. And I even did a show where there was surgicalists that were actually giving their trauma call, their night call to somebody who was paid to come in for eight hours, take call, do a surgery, and then go home. That's correct. That's happening. Has President Obama included emergency department funding in his health care reform platform? Have we been involved? I'm disappointed in the public words of Dr. Obama in this regard. The only thing that he has said publicly is that, and I quote, 
we're paying for emergency care now. When people can't go to their doctor, they go to the emergency department, end quote. And we have been involved in some of the negotiations for health care reform, but I'm disappointed to hear yet another president say, well, we're taking care of them in the ER if they can't get another doctor. That isn't the right approach to medicine. No, and it's not true that the problems with emergency department overcrowding are from people just not going to their primary care. All the high level of acute care wouldn't be handled by a primary care office anyhow. Well, and our literature that is published in peer-reviewed journals shows that somewhere between 5 and 7% of the patients in the emergency department today, in 2008, could have been seen more than 24 hours later. That means, if you look at it, 94% of our patients need to be there. What additional resources for emergency departments does the Emergency Medical Service Act provide? Is, does it su- make suggestions? Is there funding in it for extenders or urgent care centers or something to take the burden off the ERs? There's the funding for the on-call specialists that we just talked about. That's the specific funding that we have so that we can get people that we need in the middle of the night. One of the other things we need to look at, though, is boarding of patients in the, in the emergency department. About 30% nationwide of our beds are taken up by patients who have already been admitted to the hospital but can't physically go up to a bed. If we could free up the 30% of those beds, we would have more beds to see patients in. Why is it so important to have bipartisan input into the access to emergency services bill? What's the political history on this? Well, it's important that we stand on the same side of this issue. This can't be a he said, she said, fight it out issue. Emergencies affect everybody. Anyone can have a heart attack. Anyone can be involved in a car wreck. Anyone can trip over a curb and fall and break their arm. It doesn't matter if you're a billionaire or if you make zero money. You could have an emergency and you expect someone to be there to take care of you. And now what's happening, when you and I have already acknowledged this has been a problem for 10 or 15 years already, what is happening as more and more people become unemployed? Well, we're seeing an increase in the number of patients that we're seeing in the emergency department. ASAP did a poll January 19th, and our response is some 1,700 emergency physicians said that they're seeing, 83% of those said that they're seeing more patients who have lost jobs and health insurance. And what's happening now is that the stock market began to take a serious nosedive in September. By law, people are allowed to keep their insurance for a certain period of time, but the cost goes up. Very much. Very much, because they're paying the part that was formerly paid by their employer. And many people, if they've been out of work now for six months, don't have the money to continue to pay for that insurance. And if you have a choice between food and insurance, you will choose food. If you're just joining us now, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Shira Johnson, and I'm speaking with Dr. Angela Gardner, President-Elect of ASAP, and we're discussing the Access to Emergency Services Act, important legislation not covered under the Obama plan. But as we said, it's not just the unemployed using the ED as a clinic. Wealthy and insured individuals welcome emergency department services when the sports car hits a brick wall or your appy cranks up at 3 in the morning. That's true, and that could happen to anybody, and you will need emergency services. And we are victims of our own success, largely. We have many of our colleagues who know that we can get everything done at one time. So your primary care provider, you call them at 3 in the morning and say, I think I have appendicitis. 
they know that we can do the blood test, the urine test, any kind of x-ray or CT that you need, and call a surgeon in the emergency department. If you wait and go in their office, they may be able to do some tests, but it will delay your care some. So they have confidence in us, and they send their patients to us. And the lack of liability. When they send them to the emergency room, no one will hold them at fault if it, if it turns out to not be indigestion and it is a nappy because they know we'll get to the bottom of it. That is true. I don't have numbers that say how much that is a factor in those kind of decisions, but, but it is true that they have less liability if they send patients to us. And I'm not faulting primary care providers for doing that. It certainly makes sense from both a patient and a health care point of view. Oh, definitely. Are, are private practices actually having to turn away patients that they didn't turn away before? Well, I'm not in private practice, and so I don't experience this personally, but I certainly have patients that come in and say they've not been able to be seen by anyone. So why should our primary care doctors listening to this show be concerned? How does it eventually filter down and affect them? Well, a couple of things happen. We're developing a nation of doctors who will not benefit from the continuity of care. Many of us grew up in the age of Marcus Welby, and for those of you younger than that, I apologize. But many of us have that ideal of a physician, someone who knows their patients, knows all about them, can make decisions based on that, and has their welfare in mind. As we go to this system of fragmented care that we've developed, different doctors take care of that same patient, and that patient doesn't have the benefit of one person who's looking at their care. And what's happening to our elderly who are living longer and with less money? This impacts the emergency department also. It does, and it is unfortunate that the greatest growing segment of our population are people over 65 with illnesses. It's great that they're living longer, but chronic illness means that they will be in the hospital much more and that we will see them many more times. One example of this was in Miami after, and I was there for so many hurricanes, I forget if it was David or one of the other ones, but our level one ER was filled with stretchers from the nursing homes because that was the best and safest place to evacuate patients rapidly to a staff that may or may not have been prepared to handle them, but we boarded them for days because we could and we were there. Well, you know that I practice at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, and we were devastated by a hurricane in September, Hurricane Ike. And we did not board nursing home patients because we didn't board anybody. We were totally shut down and flooded. And the hospital remains closed except to labor and delivery patients at this point. One of the problems that I saw, though, was that being involved in disaster medicine, I looked at the patients who died in the week subsequent to the hurricane. And the vast majority of those patients had chronic illnesses and either couldn't get to medical care or chose not to get to medical care. But there's no doubt that being over 65 and having a chronic illness puts your life in danger if there's no emergency care available. What happens to a community when an emergency department closes? Well, I can tell you what's happening in Galveston, which I think is a bellwether for the rest of the country. We do have sort of treat and transfer policy at the emergency department so that we were able to take care of life-threatening things, but the next move would be to put someone on a helicopter and send them to the mainland. When the roads were opened, we now send people by ambulances since we still can't admit to the hospital. But the reality is that if you have an emergency on the island, you're talking about going at least 45 minutes away, maybe an hour away for medical care. Now, I realize that's the same in many parts of the country that have rural areas, but it was not the expectation of people who were living in Galveston, say, a year ago. 
Let me add to that, too, that the trauma centers in Houston are feeling the burden of that. They're talking to the legislature this week, as a matter of fact, about funding to restore the services on the island because the trauma centers in Houston have seen an increase in volume of about 30% each as a result of Galveston's closure. And I'd imagine their waiting times and their borders and everything we've already talked about is probably impacted also. Oh, I think it's safe to say that the system is at capacity. So how did the American College of Emergency Physicians award this nation a D-minus in access to emergency care? We have top-notch, state-of-the-art, level one trauma centers across the nation. What else was that grade factoring in? Was it the access to less acute care? Physicians might counter, you know, we're doing all we can, and, and there is urgent care centers, and, but we didn't rate very well with ASAP. Can you tell us why? It looked at all kinds of factors. Among them, the number of emergency physicians available per population, the number of nurses available per population, the number of hospital beds available. And the trouble with most urgent care centers is that those are a cash business. So it takes away the burden from people who have simple problems and the cash to pay for them. It does not take away people who have emergencies that need subspecialty care or emergencies that need a complex workup or people who don't have the money to pay for their care immediately. Could you develop urgent care centers that were partially funded by the government? Well, I suppose that's a possibility. I mean, we have clinics during the day, but the problem is after 5 o'clock, everything's closed and they go to the ER. Well, I don't know that that's going to take away a lot of our burden, quite honestly. You know, only 5% of our patients could delay their care by more than 24 hours, and that's published literature. So why haven't we as physicians taken a more aggressive stance on this and taken it into our own hands? Have we been pretty quiet as a group before ASAP started speaking out? Well, ASAP represents 28,000 practicing emergency physicians in the country, and we have a pretty loud voice for such a small group. What can some of the primary care doctors and specialists who are listening to this show do to support this legislation, and how important is it that they do that? Well, you know, the primary care providers and the specialists and anyone listening to the program can support this by going to the website www.acep.org and look at the legislation, and they will find there a link to their congressman where they can send a message and say, please, pass this legislation. Help us ensure emergency care in America. Okay. Thanks, Dr. Gardner, for being our guest. We've been speaking with Dr. Angela Gardner, president-elect of ASAP from University of Texas, Galveston. We've been discussing the Access to Emergency Medical Services Act. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD, on air, online, and on demand please visit us at ReachMD.com where you can find our entire library of podcasts. Thank you for listening.